Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy, actually several examples, of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 76 for the first third of June 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is some of the numerous weird astronomy claims made by Nancy Leader not related to Planet X. By way of brief background, some of you may remember way back in September of last year with episode 51, The Fake Story of Planet X, Part 4. In it, I discussed the version of Planet X propagated by Nancy Leader, a now elderly lady who insists that she is in contact with aliens called the Zetas who tell her various things. I recommend going back to episode 51 for a flavor of what happened when her Planet X did not come in May 2003, although in this episode you should get a pretty good idea for her general understanding of other concepts of astronomy. There's a bit of context that I need to go into again so that you have some idea of the root of her claims. Nancy says that she is not a medium and not a channeler, although she says that she does channel the Zetas, though they don't take over her body like in traditional channeling, alleged traditional channeling. She describes her interaction as though they are holding up flashcards that she's reading off of when she's speaking for the Zetas. When she does this, what I'm going to call channeling, she starts off by saying, this is the Zetas on that, and then goes into it. She'll end with something like, this is the end of Zeta talk. She's very good at branding. Her description of how she says she channels is actually quite ingenious, in my opinion. Because she has to communicate questions to the Zetas, and they have to prompt her with concepts that she puts into words back to us, she says that if she forgets the question, or if she doesn't understand it, then she can't relay it to the Zetas. So if I, for example, were to ask her to ask the Zetas about quantum chromodynamics to see if they really are an advanced alien species, she wouldn't do it because she doesn't understand it. Therefore, she can't relay it to the Zetas to explain what it is. This is also her excuse for when she says things that are factually wrong, although until things are pointed out to her live on air, she emphatically states those things of factual wrongitude that I'm going to go over in this episode. But she claims that since the Zetas aren't giving her exact English words to say, that if she has the wrong impression in her head, even though she's reading off these flashcards, they can't get their message through. To quote her, quote, I am a true translator. You know, I'm a participant. If I have something in my head that's wrong, they have a hard time getting their concepts through that veil. So sometimes I will stumble. If I don't understand the topic, I'm, if I'm not on the same page, and I don't have the background to it, I can, I can really bloop, end quote. This also accounts for her word choice slips when channeling, sometimes using I instead of we, when she's supposed to be talking from them. Otherwise, like other channelers, even though she says she isn't one, she's reading off of invisible flashcards, she does try to slip into a slightly different word pattern when channeling, generally just speaking faster, or putting in a lot of ums and uhs because she can't quite keep up with herself. With all of that background done through with, the first broad claim I want to address is Nancy's ideas on gravity. Back in a 2003 interview, she claimed this about the moon. 
Our moon, according to Newton, should not be up there. It's moving too slow. It weighs way too much. should be crashing into Earth. If you put the uh, reverse square law of, of gravity attraction together with Newton's um, centrifugal force law, they don't fit together. That's 23 million tri- uh, trillion tons of adjusted weight moving at less than the speed of the Concorde uh, around um, our, our globe. And, and we've done that study on Psi-Astro debates the end of 1998. Take that click on the Zeta Talk website and read uh, those moon uh, discussions Humans are pretty stupid, and and we don't admit to our frailties. So let's see. She lists two numbers about the moon. First is how much it weighs, which she puts at 23 trillion tons. Assuming Google did my math right, that's 2 times 10 to the 16 kilograms. She's a tad off by about a factor of 50 million. It's actually about 7 times 10 to the 22 kilograms, or a little bit bigger than 1% the mass of the Earth. The other number she gave was the orbital speed, which she put down as slower than a Concorde jet. Based on a quick search, the Concorde flew somewhere around Mach 2, which is around twice the speed of sound, and about 2,200 kilometers per hour. Dividing by 3,600 gives us 0.7 kilometers per second. The moon goes around Earth with an average speed of 1 kilometer per second. If the number I found for the Concorde was maybe a bit low, maybe it goes at th- or went at three Mach or Mach three, then we can say that they have reasonably comparable speeds. But that doesn't mean anything. It's like saying that there is no way an eagle should be able to stay in flight because I can hit a baseball faster than it can fly, or someone else can hit a baseball faster than it can fly. I suppose you have to actually be able to hit a baseball first. One has nothing to do with the other, that's the point, it's a non-sequitur. All it means is that if the Concorde jet worked in space, and it could get there, it would be able to maintain a stable orbit around Earth at its top speed. That's all that means. This is also a good example of Nancy trying to use sciency terms to sound like she knows what she's talking about. It's the inverse square law of gravity, not the reverse square law, and there is no such thing as a centrifugal or centripetal force law. Now, it has been a long time since I mentioned this show's sponsor, so Kepler! For the first few dozen episodes of this show, it seemed as though every other one was dependent upon this 16th century astronomer and his three laws of planetary motion. Kepler's third law relates how long it takes something in a stable orbit to do that orbit given its distance from the orbited object. Newton's law of gravity helped specify various terms in it, and you can use Newton's form of Kepler's third law to determine exactly how fast the moon needs to travel to be in orbit around Earth. No special thing necessary. The other part of this is that the mass of the moon, that other number she mentioned, simply doesn't matter. Unless it's maybe within 10 times the mass of the Earth, or more generally, the object that's orbiting being within about 10 times the mass of the orbited object, the mass doesn't factor in at all. In fact, it makes the math much easier. The only time that you need to involve the mass of the second object is when you're talking really about binary stars or a binary planet system, or I guess binary dwarf planet system like Pluto and Charon. 
it's insignificant, it's minuscule, and it really doesn't matter according to the physics in the Earth-Moon system. So she's wrong. Newton was actually fascinated with the moon, and some people say that his theory of gravity was in part motivated to determine why the moon does orbit Earth. But that's not the only way that Nancy is wrong about gravity. You know, we have an ecliptic where all the planets kind of float around in a ring outside the sun, similar to Saturn's ring. Ring, And, and the reason for this, according to the Zetas, is that there's a backwash of subatomic particles, which we're not even aware of, that, that wash back in toward the, the middle of the sun. And, and, uh, and it's very crowded. And there's actually an adjunct to gravity, uh, which is called the repulsion force, where gravity pulls toward. The reason the large planets don't bump into each other or fly into the sun is because there's a repulsion force, so there's much we don't know. Don't worry, that little bit of music that you heard was the end of the hour of Coast to Coast. It's not some weird celestial music you're hearing and you're close to death. Anyway, I'd posit that based on this statement and others, that there's much that Nancy doesn't know, as opposed to other people. Similar to Lloyd Pye's book, Everything You Know Is Wrong, it should have been Everything Lloyd Pye Knows Is Wrong, but that's a different podcast. Anyway, I suppose it's possible that we don't understand gravity on such a large scale as Nancy is claiming. It is a fact that we don't understand it at very small scales because we have no theory that merges quantum mechanics and relativity but that's also a different podcast. My point here is that our current ideas on gravity fully explain with a relatively simple system everything that she's trying to explain with a more complicated system. It's unnecessary, and until there's actual evidence for what she claims, the onus is on her, or the Zetas, to come up with evidence for it. I mean, the planets stay in orbit because they have the right energy to be at that orbit. The force of gravity is way too small on you know Jupiter versus Saturn, or Saturn versus Uranus, or Uranus versus Neptune, or Neptune versus Jupiter, so they don't go flying across the solar system. You don't need a repulsive force to keep them in line. Now, I mentioned at the start of this set of claims on gravity that these clips were from 2003. By 2005, she had merged them. There's a gravity repulsion force, which is, according to the Zetas, why the moon stays up there. It's way too heavy and moving too slowly not to be dropping to Earth. It's not centrifugal force that keeps our moon up there. There's really not much else to say at this point about her gravity claims. The second claim of Nancy's goes along with her Planet X saga, but it isn't Planet X. Since March of 2003, when Planet X was zooming up to snug up close to the sun, it, uh, we started getting this where all the live seismographs, dozens of them, uh, the USGS gives us regularly online, would shudder and, and show this black, you know, simultaneously all over the globe. And it was when the Atlantic Rift would either face the sun and Planet X or be in opposition. Ma magnets like to line up. And, uh, and Planet X was saying to the Earth, stick with me, it's because the Atlantic Rift in and of itself is a big surface magnet uh, and of, of hardened lava recently ripped apart. Uh, and, and that's was, it's so dramatic. There's no other explanation, George, for that global shuddering at the face and dark, nor has any kind of a cover-up explanation ever been tried to be put out. 
One thing I like about Brian Dunning's Skeptoid podcast is that he often points out that the first step in investigating a claim is to see if it's real. If it's not real, you don't have to come up with any explanation and your job is made much easier. Obviously, I would not be bringing this up if it didn't apply in this case. Absolutely none of what Nancy said in that 50-second clip is real. None of it happened. None of it is happening. My work is done. But as with many topics that I discuss, let's at least go into why, even if some of what she said was happening, the rest wouldn't be happening. First, many planets do have magnetic fields. Her Planet X probably would also, given what we know about planets and how she describes it. Could it cause Earth to shudder and shake as it passes by? Mm, no. As with Planet X not causing a pole flip because there's nothing for it to grab onto and it's not just sitting there trying to tug, but it's just passing by, the same goes for magnetism. And that's because the Mid-Atlantic Rift is young crust, volcanically active, freshly deposited magma on the bottom of the seafloor spreading the continents. But it's not like it has some gigantic magnetic field associated with it. It couldn't. It has the same magnetic field as the field of the rest of the planet when it formed. All because it's fresh, new rock, it doesn't mean that it's crazily magnetized. So no, there is not some magnetic handle sticking out of the mid-Atlantic rift for a highly magnetic planet X to tug on. Which is why, besides nothing in her statement being true, nothing in it would be true even if other parts were true. Another claim of Nancy's is a very quick one that, rather than be indicative of any particular science misconception, gets more towards how astronomers work and how Nancy's conspiratorial mind also works. Keep in mind for this clip that when she says they, the second word, she means astronomers. If they get access to uh, large observatory scopes, they have to take a national security oath agreement because... They're seeing UFOs. They're seeing those motherships all the time. And do we hear about this in the media? Do they come forward and say, oh, look, I saw a mothership again. I got an image of it. No, because they're under a national security oath not to cause panic. The alien presence is one of those panic things. Planet X is an even bigger panic bucket button. As I usually try to do in cases like this, I'll again point out that if it's a UFO, it is not a mothership. She has identified it as a mothership, therefore by definition it cannot be unidentified, which is the first word in UFO. As for the claim, all I can go on is my own experience, but I have gotten time on large observatory telescopes, and I've observed on a 2.4 meter telescope before. I have never had to sign a national security agreement. The most biggest thing I had to sign was an agreement to pay for dinner at the telescope facilities. I have also never taken an image of a UFO. And this is actually one of the stupidest ways to take a picture of a UFO. You're usually talking about a telescope that has a detector that has a field of view smaller than the size of the moon. And you're talking about taking an image for several hours. A still image, mind you, not a movie. 
If you wanted to photograph an alien ship supposedly going through our atmosphere, you would want a wide-angle camera lens that would cover many, many, many times the size of the moon, and you'd probably want to take a movie. The exact opposite of what you would do on a large observatory telescope. With that in mind, there's a lot of miscellany items and other crazy astronomy claims that I'm not covering. And I'm already 16 minutes in and I have a lot of other work to do. At the risk of listing something that someone's going to write in and say they want me to go into more detail on, I'm going to list them. One, she refers to the dark side of the moon instead of the far side. Two, she claims the Galactic Federation made the Anunnaki leave Mars. Three, the Big Bang is what made the planets go around the sun the same way. Four, but also that Big Bangs and black holes happen periodically in different places in the universe in order to replenish the universe. Five, oil forms by Planet X dropping water into volcanoes. It mixes up with magma and forms hydrocarbons, which is oil, so oil is abiotic. Maybe she took a little bit from Scientology for that one. Six, Global warming is caused by Planet X, but seven, chemtrails are only on the rise because they want to hide Planet X from you. Eight, the asteroid belt was once a larger body made of water that was, quote, bashed to pieces, unquote, that formed the comets. I'm not quite sure how you can bash water into pieces, but see episodes 29 through 30 about the asteroid belt not being from an exploded planet. 9. The pole shift is already happening, evidenced by people reporting that the sun is too far north when it sets. See episode 24 for that. For the first bit of feedback for this episode, since there's no new news and due to constraints, no Q&A, I'm going to discuss a message from Rick K. Quote, We have a lot of dust in Earth's atmosphere. Why doesn't it affect the color of ours as much as on Mars? The way I understand it, the large amount of nitrogen molecules in Earth's air contributes a huge effect, and I presume water contributes as well. I've read there's very little water in the Martian atmosphere, so maybe that's why dust plays such a prominent role. End quote. The answer, yes. Which means that it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario two episodes ago was, could scientists use the atmospheric measurements, looking at composition and particle size, to determine from first principles what the sky color should be on Mars. This is where we have our second bit of feedback from Phil. Quote, I've been mentoring a high school group that has been building and flying payloads on weather balloons. We reach about 100,000 feet, or 30 kilometers, before the balloon bursts. At that altitude, pressure is around 1 kilopascal, about 1% of the surface pressure, and temperatures of 225 kelvins, that's below freezing. Coincidentally, these are pretty close to those on the surface of Mars, although the Martian surface temperature is quite variable. Our videos from that altitude, just like those from every other group that has flown cameras to that altitude, show the sky to be absolutely black. 
That's just how the Martian sky would look from the surface if there wasn't so much dust suspended in the atmosphere. That establishes the color of the Martian sky, and that's why it closely matches the color of the surface, except in special situations like a sunset, when the atmospheric path is unusually long. So congratulations to Phil, among a few others, for writing in with parts of the answer. The solution is a qualified yes, and this is also why I didn't go into more detail with Rick's question or message. So the solution is a qualified yes. The qualifier is because doing detailed atmospheric modeling and throwing in simulated dust and then sticking a camera in there isn't exactly that easy. But from basic principles, we can say that the atmosphere is primarily carbon dioxide. From what I can find, there is almost no visible light absorption by carbon dioxide. It's mostly infrared, and so it would be pretty clear. And as Phil pointed out, at the atmospheric density on Mars, which is equivalent to somewhere around 30 kilometers elevation on Earth, there's so little air anyway that even a good scatterer like nitrogen wouldn't be very effective, and the sky would be pretty darn black. So the only way that you get a color of the sky, instead of it being like the moon, is with dust. Dust particles on Mars are roughly the right size to scatter red light and infrared light and to absorb other visible colors. Those effects combined give you the red. There is no puzzler for this episode, but the next episode will be about 2012 backpedaling, finally. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send them in. For announcements, I have two. As Tam approacheth, a meetup is possibly being planned. Well, it is being planned as a possibility. Right now, it's looking like it's probably going to be Saturday around dinner time. There's a break between the last session beginning at 6.15 and the next evening show at 9 o'clock, and so some time in there is probably when it will be. I'll bring candied nuts or some such thing, provided that the Colorado people don't eat them all before Saturday. I'm going to try to bring my microphone, the idea being of the meetup as sort of a discussion about the bad, or actually the pseudo, not bad, the pseudo-astronomy topics, and maybe some questions betwixt me's and you's, and I'll, then I'll put this out as something like a special podcast episode. More details should be forthcoming, assuming that plans go ahead, but in the meantime, please send me an email. You can use the Stuart at sjrdesign.net if you think that you're interested and will be able to come. I'll also be selling free tickets to the event. Can't get in without a tricky dick fun buck. Also, for the second bit of announcement, as I mentioned in the puzzler, the next episode will be on 2012 backpedaling. I'm still looking for some really good examples of retrodicting, especially among the main people in the movement, like John Major Jenkins and Brent Miller. Most of what I've found is crickets. If you have good examples of backpedaling that you've seen, please send them in. The episode may also be a few days late because I have two grants due on June 14th, so I may have to wait until June 15th to get the episode out, although I will backdate it to the 11th.
That wraps up this topic for the 76th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned some at the same time. For more information about this podcast, you can visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website, and you can even send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. That's right, we give out secret special email addresses here. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. You could leave a comment on my blog post for the episode, or leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You could also send me a tweet, at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O. I do read every message. I know I'm behind again on replying, but I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, in your spare free time, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your portal of choice. If you liked it, tell lots of people. 